0: Amen. Let's pray as we approach God's Word together this morning. Lord, speak to us. We are your servants. We would like to hear from you, our God. We're so grateful that you speak through your Word. Speak also through your servant that we may know you and desire you all the more and desire to worship and adore you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. people like to use euphemisms. You know what those are, right? A euphemism is a substitute expression. Uh, We use them to make more gentle or mild a word or a phrase that seems a little too harsh or too blunt. So, for instance, I'm not short. I'm vertically challenged. On a more serious note, we say things like she passed away or... She went to a better place instead of she died. Sometimes you hear people use euphemisms for sin. Instead of I sinned against you, it's something like, well, I made a mistake. Or I I made a faux pas, a blunder, a misstep. I messed up. Maybe they'll say something like, I was righteously challenged. No, they don't ever say that (laughs) Now, why would people use euphemisms at all, and why would they use them for sin? Well, euphemisms are an attempt to lessen the impact. You soften the blow, and in some cases, it's not bad. To say someone passed away instead of they died may actually show kindness to someone that you're speaking to. To say, Jason, you're, you're not short, you're, you're just not tall, might help my ego a little, but beloved when it comes to the concept of sin we really don't want to lose the impact or soften the blow and i think that we have often we don't want to do this because by doing so we actually undermine the glory of god in many different ways we miss his holiness we miss his beauty and we miss the, the value of His grace if we wrongly minimize sin. I want you to hold that thought. This morning we returned to our series in Genesis. Uh, I know it has been a while. It's been more than two months since we were together in the book of Genesis. But we're back to this series today. And I want to do a quick recap of where we have come to so we could get ready for what we're going to look at this morning God created the heavens and the earth. As part of that creation, we're told that God created what we described as a garden temple. That is the Garden of Eden. It's a special place of God's presence, a special place of communion with God. And remember, God created Adam, and the scriptures say that he put Adam into that garden temple to guard it. That's something really important to keep in mind. The scriptures say that he was supposed to work it and to keep it. That word keep it means he was to guard it. He then, God, created Eve as Adam's helpmate. They were to work the garden together. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to fill the earth. In other words, the garden was supposed to grow and expand and fill the entire world. Why? Why? Well, Adam and Eve were God's vice-regents. They were images of the living God meant to reveal and to represent His glory and His rulership throughout the world. There was only one stipulation, one covenant prohibition. I'm sure you remember. All of this lush garden is yours. All of the trees, it's yours. Be filled. Enjoy my provision. God says to them, there's just one thing do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right one thing if you eat it what happens you'll die we said this was the covenant stipulation of the covenant of works that god made with adam the implied other side by the way is this if you obey you will live and you will enter into the sabbath rest of god forever and ever in other words there was a sort of probationary period for adam in the garden here's the problem they ate from the wrong tree they broke the one covenant stipulation and because of that the curse of the covenant remember disobey and die the curse of death fell upon them and all who would come after them adam was our covenant head the representative of all humanity and so in him all humanity fell that's what the london baptist confession talks about in chapter six god came to adam as the covenant head and what does adam do he passes the buck to eve And he blames God. The woman you gave me. When God asks Eve about her involvement, of course, Eve does what? Fesses up? No, she passes the buck to the serpent and implicitly to God. God doesn't even ask the serpent anything, does he? God goes straight to the curse. He curses the serpent. He declares judgment on the woman and on the man. But remember this, in the middle of all of that, In the middle of this judgment against the serpent, he mentions that there will be a seed of the woman, and he is going to bruise the head of the serpent. Why? Because the serpent is the one who came to divide those who were made in the image of God from the God who they were to represent. So God will send a champion for humankind who will defeat the one who tempted the first parents away from God. Why did we need this champion? Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, we're going to look at verses 22 through 24 this morning. Genesis 3, it is on page 3 of the uh, the sanctuary Bibles. You can grab one from underneath the seat in front of you. And I encourage you to open up your Bibles and keep them open. Genesis chapter 3 verses starting at verse 22. Let's hear now God's word. Then the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word. Take a look at there at verse 22. There's a conversation that takes place within the Godhead. It's the second time in the early parts of Genesis that we're seeing this. The first time was when God said, let us make man in our image. And here we're given the privilege to kind of hear the thoughts of God. He's watched all that has taken place. He saw his own creatures fall and the way they fell. And here's his assessment. Behold, the man has become like one of us. And we're going to come back to what that means. But whatever it is, it's clearly not good. It's bad. It isn't what God designed. It, it, it isn't the way things were meant to be. When he says, behold, they've become like us. Something has changed and it is not good And we could see that in verses 22 through 24, that man in that state, after disobeying God, humans, now knowing good and evil, are no longer qualified to remain in the garden. They're no longer competent for the tasks that they were given. They're no longer adequate for the high calling of being God's vice regents. This morning, as we look at this passage, I I want us to focus on two aspects here. First, our fallenness. What does it really mean that we are fallen? Second, our punishment. What is it that we deserve for our fallenness? So first, our our fallenness, or another way of looking at it, our corruption. Second, our punishment, or our guilt. Because from Adam, we receive both guilt and corruption but let's start with our fallenness look at verse 22 again when looking at this passage and earlier in genesis we learned something extremely important about humanity after the fall after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we see that something has drastically changed we read it god says behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil what does that mean What exactly changed? Remember earlier when the serpent was tempting Eve, one of the things that he said to her is, God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like him. Was the serpent right? Was he telling the truth? Don't forget that the serpent is excellent at half-truths. What did he make it sound like What did he want Adam and Eve to believe about that temptation? He wanted them to believe that God was withholding something good from them. And God knows we're going to be just like him, and he doesn't want that because he doesn't want that good thing for us. And Satan is saying something like, it's going to be great. Just do as I say. Trust me. I imagine him crossing his fingers behind his back, but I don't know if serpents have fingers. Did they get something good by eating? Didn't didn't God already say that they were like Him? That we were made in His image, in His likeness? In fact, it seems to me that eating, and after eating, in many ways, we were much less like God and much more like who? The serpent. Remember all the the covering up and the passing of the buck? In fact, did Adam and Eve not know good and evil already? Didn't they have to have some moral sense? Otherwise, how could God have even given them a command, do this or don't do that? What would it mean for them to not do evil if they didn't know what evil was? You see, this knowing good and evil does not mean that suddenly by eating the fruit of this tree, they had now this intellectual and cognitive ability to understand the difference between right and wrong. They already had that, so then what's changed? Some people think that Adam and Eve now had experiential knowledge of evil. Now they've done it, so now they've experienced it. It's a different kind of knowledge. But would God be able to say about that, now they've become like one of us? Has God experienced doing evil? Of course not. So again, I ask, what's happening here? What is it that God is saying, behold, now they are like us? What's He talking about? Well, the language of know in the Old Testament Scriptures is also in some places translated, choose. In other words, they know as in they discern, but more than that, they decide what is good and evil, or so they think. Think about it this way, instead of believing God and trusting His assessment of what is right and good and what is evil and wrong, they ended up deciding for themselves that they would trust someone else, the serpent. They went from being submissive to God's Word to being an authority over God's Word. Assessing it. Deciding for themselves what was good. Or as one theologian put it, he said, they started creating meaning rather than simply understanding meaning as God had given it. Does that not sound familiar to you? Doesn't it seem like what the world does even now today? You can't tell me who or what I am. Only I can decide that. Really. They were like God in the sense that they were deciding for themselves what was good and what was evil instead of trusting God. I think I said it before, but a simple analogy of this, how much trouble do we get into when we're building something and we decide not to use instructions? Well, I don't know about you all. Maybe there are enough engineers that maybe you could figure it out, but I can't. This knowing has to do with evaluating and choosing. Adam and Eve chose to go against God's evaluation and use their own, create their own version of good. Doesn't that sound like all sinners? You see, the serpent successfully pit them against God when they were made to be under God and connected to God, right? Right? That's how we were designed. God's garden temple, the place of worship and communion with God, was under attack by the serpent. The serpent is attacking. And you know what the man and his wife do? They agreed with the attacker instead of God. In fact, beloved, let me tell you this. This is how all sin works. All sin is really rebellion against God. It is a declaration of war against the Holy One. It is deciding what is good on our own instead of discerning what is good according to the One who created everything. When we choose to sin and to fall into temptation, it is because we are finding God's way wanting or lacking. We think that what sin promises is more trustworthy than God Himself. How offensive that must be to God. And beloved, I do it every day. I do it every day. We believe the lie that we'll be like God as though mere humans could be or should be like God. And you could pick any sin and the formula works the same. Consider your own life. Consider your own sins. Consider the times, for instance, that you've chosen to slander instead of bless why do we do it? Sometimes it's because we don't trust God that vengeance is His. And so we take it to ourselves. How does that usually turn out? Not so good. Consider the times we've followed our lusts and our desires instead of practicing self-control. Why do we do it? Well, we don't trust God that those things can't fulfill instead we believe those desires that if we get that thing it's going to satisfy us and we get it and what happens usually we regret it and certainly never has it ever fulfilled us in a lasting way you can go through your sins and see how each follows the same pattern beloved And so our fallenness includes at least a number of things. One of them is this, an exchange. Our fallenness is all about an exchange. Paul writes in Romans 1.22, he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Think about it. You have the author of life, the author of beauty, the author of all goodness, And he speaks to you and he tells you what is good and what will bring you life and what will bring you fullness and you decide that you know better than him. That's just stupid. It's folly. All sin, beloved, is irrational. It's stupid for us to think that we know better than our godly parents, even though they can be wrong. How much more ridiculous to act that way toward God who can't be wrong but every time we choose to sin that's exactly what we're doing our fallenness includes an exchange but a pretty pathetic one i remember growing up and uh, trading baseball cards anyone else do baseball card trading apparently i'm the only I one other one good at least <laughs> sometimes after you make this trade you go home and you realize what was i thinking I gave away so-and-so's rookie card for that nothing of a card. How much worse to exchange life for make-believe that leads to death. There's there's more to our fallenness. This knowledge that supposedly they gained was actually darkness. It wasn't real knowledge. It was make-believe. We can't really create meaning at all. We just pretend to. Some passages even say that we're blind in our fallenness. Paul says the following in Ephesians 4.18. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Beloved, sin blinds us we can't even see where we're going wrong when we're in sin why because we're alienated from the life of god so we're alienated from his light in fact the scriptures are clear his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto what our path when we reject his word we're rejecting our only way to know where we're going or how to walk our only hope for grasping the truth but there's more look at verse 22 in Genesis 3 again in our passage and notice that God does not want the man to be able to eat of the tree of life now that he has eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so our our fallenness includes this terrible exchange it includes darkness but it also includes death no access to life no more hope of having the blessings of God's covenant No more hope of entering that glorious Sabbath that was promised. Why would God supply us with weapons to attack him with? Of course he's going to remove the blessing. He says no access. Here's the interesting thing. Even God admits that in some way we are now like him. But here's what the serpent never mentioned. Because of eating the fruit, they will no longer be with God you see that there's this crushing reality of sin there's always a catch always a lie always a false promise the serpent made it sound like they were going to get all sorts of blessings all sorts of authority all sorts of power man it was going to be so good that not only did they not get what he promised them but they lost what they already had with god Beloved, God desires good for us. The enemy does not. He wants to destroy us, and in many ways, he did. So let's look at that. Let's look at our punishment now. We already said that first there's no tree of life. By the way, what was the tree of life? Have you thought about that? At the very least, we know that it held the promise of God, eat it and have life. But what life were they to have? Clearly, it didn't mean simple earthly life. They already had that. Was it just that they were going to have never-ending life? It was just the quantity? Maybe. But I think that based on what we read in the rest of Scripture, there's more. Consider, for instance, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, about the perishable and the imperishable. He talks about the natural body versus the spiritual body. Body. He speaks of our eternal existence being as glorious as the difference between a seed being sown today and growing up to be this glorious tree. You would never know from that seed what the tree was going to look like. Seems to me that that was the goal all along. And if Adam and Eve had just obeyed and eventually passed their probation, such would be their life forever with God. But sin closed the door to life. The way to life is closed to the one who rejects God. Please stop and consider that. God is the author of life and we reject him. So where can we go to find life? In other words, death was their portion now. God didn't lie. The serpent was not right. There was nothing really good that came from disobeying God. It's still the case, beloved. And part of the punishment and consequence of sin is that humans were out of communion with the very author of life. There's more to this. They were actually expelled from the garden. Do you see that in verses 23 and 24? They were kicked out of the presence of God. The lush provision was no longer theirs. Now Adam would have to work the land, but the land wouldn't submit to him. It would fight back against him. Beloved, sin makes everything worse in every way. Do you believe that? That sin makes everything worse in every way. Because until you believe that, you will not value Jesus the way you ought and you will keep pursuing sin the way you shouldn't. Don't miss this. There's a theme running throughout the scriptures, this theme of being put out of the presence of God. They were cast out of the garden to the east. Look at verse 24. Then I want you to consider the rest of scripture. For Israel, part of the consequence of of a a grievous sin, something like profaning the Sabbath, was death. And the Old Testament describes that further. It says, being cut off from your people. If you think about what Jesus was doing in the temple when he was so upset that they were defiling the temple, he does what? He cleanses the temple. He kicks them out of the temple. Go out. You don't belong in here. In the church, when Paul tells the Corinthians to put the unrepentant sinner out of the church community under church discipline, he quotes the Old Testament saying, purge the evil person from among you all of these are trying to help the individual see the point sin has no place in the presence of god he is far too holy and far too pure to even look upon sin so what am i doing here i should be dead You think about the design of the tabernacle in Exodus or the temple that comes later. It very much correlates with what's going on in the garden temple. There is the most holy place which represents the very presence of God. The temple always is to open to the east. Think about that. The whole design of the temple is saying you can't come in, keep out. You can't come in. What do we find in verse 24 of chapter 3 of Genesis? Not only was the man driven out of the garden, God made sure he couldn't return. How does he do that? He puts the angelic beings, the cherubim, in front of the entryway with a flaming sword. What for? It's not decoration, it's to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, listen, beloved, to get to life, there would have to be death. Who could survive? Who could survive? Before entering the tabernacle or the temple, there was an altar for sacrifice. Death needed before you can enter into the presence of God. There's one more thing in our passage. Don't miss this. It's heartbreaking. But Adam was replaced. What do the cherubim do? Verse 24. They guard the way to the tree of life, the very thing that Adam was supposed to be doing, guarding the garden, is now being done to him. He must be kept out. Beloved, do you see the dreadful impact of sin? Both in terms of fallenness and punishment? Do you see how sin just tore everything apart? I want to step back for a moment. Think about this. Humans went from being the crown of God's creation, the only creatures made in the image of God, priests of the garden temple, guardians of God's paradise, to enemies that had to be kept out. From being truly like God in righteousness to resembling instead the devil in his crafty lies, half-truths, and self-glorification. Sin is rebellion against God. It is blinding. It is irrational. It can only lead to death, and we're stuck in it. We have no way back to God, no way into the garden. The cherubim with the flaming sword will see to it that no one who tries to enter can live In other words, sin is bad in every possible way. It cuts us off from God. It cuts us off from from everything that is good. It cuts us off and causes us to chase after everything that is bad. It turns everything upside down. Instead of using euphemisms, beloved, we should be as clear as possible as to the sinfulness and wretchedness of sin We need to be like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 24 who cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Why? Why must we see the dreadful impact of sin? Because beloved, without seeing just how devastating sin is and how trapped we are on our own, we could never grasp just how good Jesus is. Jesus looked down at these rebellious people who created, who He created and He saw that there was none righteous, no, not even one. He saw enemies, rebels without a cause, and those who would rather replace Him than submit to Him. If you remember last week from Pastor Haig's message on the prodigal son, The prodigal son wanted his inheritance even while his father was alive, which, beloved, is another way of saying he didn't care if his father was dead. That's what sin wants. For God to die. Jesus looked down, and not only did He not immediately come to destroy, which He could have, instead He willingly decided to enter into our flesh To be destroyed for our sake. He came to live perfectly, but there's more. He also knew that in order for us to ever enter the Garden Temple and be able to taste of the tree of life, he would have to go through the cherubim and the flaming sword. Jesus, our champion, would have to face the judgment we deserved suffering through death, even death on a cross in order to allow those who are in Him to have access to the tree of life. If we don't see sin for what it is, we will never grasp Christ for who He is. And we will never have the gratitude that He is worthy of. And we will never care to flee sin that took our Savior to that cross. And here's the rub of it. The impact of sin is dreadful, but it is either dreadful for you if you have to carry it on your own, or it was dreadful for Christ who already endured it for those who trust in Him. And not only did He endure it, did He go through it, did He sacrifice Himself, but He rose again. Trust in Him today cling to christ give him thanks give him praise that he would be willing to endure all that pain and suffering for us what a god and how do we give him thanks jesus said if you love me obey my commands because he's loved us and freed us from dominion of sin let us now pursue holiness as worship and thanksgiving to our gracious god because we know just how dreadful the impact of sin is and we know just how glorious the grace of our god is amen let's pray lord we just want to live for you And we know that that's not our natural inclination. It's supernatural. You've changed us to want that. Thank you, Lord. Help us daily to see just how sinful sin is, which means just how awesome our Savior is. And may we live lives of thank you each day. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite...